to end if love remains a unique show spotlighting people ideas science culture and art your host mike lovett, mike lovett. hello and yes welcome to that great podcast in the sky you're listening to and if love remains i am your host mike lovett and i have with us our uh, co-host the maestro of music the Pasha Pianism, <laughs> Elias Axel Pedersen, welcome back. Good to have you, man. Hey, Mike. Thanks. I, I love the new uh, titles that I've got. It's awesome. I think I'm just going to add add to your... Each time. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're going to have, you know, you're going you're gonna to have the longest uh, intro of all time. Sounds good. I'm really excited today. We've got some awesome guests on. Yeah, we really do. And I'm very excited to have, we have, first of all, we have a returning guest, Max Brown. Um, he is the manager at IPAM. Um, and we're going to talk a little about, again, about IPAM, what it is, the International Piano Archives of Maryland, um, and this really important uh, resource for both scholars and, and musicians. And we're very excited to, to have him on. But we also have another special guest, uh, Donald Man- uh, Manildi. Um, he is the curator at IPAM. Um, he's uh, been there since 1993. He holds degrees in piano performance from the University of Washington and the Cleveland Institute of Music. Uh, he has made many appearances as a pianist in a broad repertoire of over 200 works. And his presentations focus on the field of recorded pianism, uh, both historical and current, as well as the full extent of the piano repertoire. Very excited to have this just wonderful scholar and 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 uh, um, expert on Mr. Donald Manildi. Thanks for being on with us today. Glad to be here. Good to be here, guys. <clears throat> oh, cool. And Max, we had so much fun last time. Of course, we've been trying to get you back maybe, on. Maybe too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's we have okay. To stick to the clock no, you, see, there. we got to remember. We got to remember. We don't work piano. We play piano. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm really excited to have both uh, all three of you guys on, and and it's it's gonna. I think this will this will be a fantastic uh, episode. First of all, Max, give us a quick recap on IPAM, what it is, and its significance. Okay, sure. Uh, again, it's a uh, one of a kind uh, resource. Um, really, the only one of its kind anywhere in the world that focuses on the history uh, of performance, piano performance. That would be in recordings, in in print in literature um, relating to pianists and piano playing, et cetera, all brought together in one resource. Um, and it's here at the University of Maryland. I, IPAM, the International Piano Library, actually, uh, is what it was called at the very beginning, was was founded in the mid-1960s. Uh, but it did come to the University of Maryland in the late 70s and has been here since. And I, I've been here for quite a long time, uh, but Don has been here, as you said, since 1993. And uh, I'm hoping we can get Don just to speak a little bit about his role here, because uh, a lot of the students here and people abroad, it's not just uh, the material that we have here, but Don himself is, is really a resource um, just in terms of his knowledge and the help that he's given a lot of scholars and a lot of students doing their degrees here. 
Yeah, wonderful, Don. Yeah, tell tell us a little bit how you became acquainted and how you got involved with it, um, with IPAM. Well, the in, entire collection was here and functioning very well at the university uh, ever since the late 1970s, well supported by the University of Maryland Libraries. And the idea was that the collection, which continued to be developed over the years, adding new materials, whether they be recordings or scores or documentation on the careers of pianists, the entire gamut of information uh, dealing with classical piano music. Uh, in uh, 1993, the position of curator uh, opened up and uh, I was familiar with the collection and the people here at the time. Uh, my background was uh, both as a pianist and previously in uh, broadcasting in Minnesota. And I did a weekly program for Minnesota Public Radio called The Romantic Piano, which uh, dealt with the full gamut of both uh, historic pianists who made recordings and some of the less familiar piano literature, that field being very vast in, it, in and of itself. So my background was uh, deemed suitable for the position. And in 1993, I was hired. And the responsibilities are basically several, dealing with uh, patrons and visitors. Some of them are students here at the university. Others are from outside the campus. They may be preparing a recital, looking for certain materials that pertain to their uh, preparation for performance. They may be more oriented toward musicology or research into either performance practices uh, performance styles and traditions, or sometimes the piano literature itself for either personal research, sometimes dissertations or books. And we also have visitors who come in who are more general music lovers who are just fascinated with pianists and piano music, and they're interested in seeing or hearing some rare materials that are in our collection, but uh, would not otherwise be easily accessible. So in a nutshell, that's the function of, of my position, uh, continually dealing with the people who have a need for uh, the collection and also developing the collection by adding new and rare materials uh, all the time in uh, all the fields that we deal with. How, how difficult is that for you to decide what goes in and what may stay out of the library? Well, that's interesting because sometimes we get offered things uh, that are of very marginal interest uh, and are not particularly unique or probably not especially valuable from the scholarly standpoint. So it's always informed judgment we have to make. And we also have space considerations here. We don't have unlimited space on our shelves. So we have to keep that in mind as well. But if there's any anticipation that maybe uh, soon or 10 years from now or 50 years from now, uh, this particular recording or this collection of scores might be valuable in some fashion, then it will be here. You can never anticipate what need might arise uh, down the road. So we have to take the long view of uh, long-term significance of, of the materials, whether, again, they're recordings or scores or just, just plain documents. Mm -hmm. Now, that Elias, you're, I mean, you're 
you had a personal connection with with the library with Max mm-hmm. and and Don. Talk, talk about your experience and and maybe you know um, you know how you know how, how do sure. these yeah talk about your experience yeah well and and we'll just um, I'll say quickly that uh, it's great to have to hear Don. I haven't really spoken to him for a long time, and uh, he was so instrumental in my own development uh, during my master's degree at, uh, at University of Maryland. That was from 03 to 05. And I used IPAM as, as a resource, as did many other uh, f- students in that era. And it was just incredible to, to come in and listen to, you know, a piece that I might be working on for a recital um, and to hear many different versions of it. Of course, Nowadays, there's YouTube and all these other, we've talked about these resources, and those were not so readily available at the time. Of course, there were CDs, but uh, some very rare findings um, at IPAM. And I remember hearing a few uh, few recordings that I'd never heard before, and I told a small anecdote about a, a list piece that I, I had heard, and it's the first time I, I realized that I'd copied the pages incorrectly, and everybody that had heard me so far... Um, they uh, they hadn't caught it. So anyway, I got it caught at IPAM. Um, I played in a master <laughs> class at IPAM for, uh, I think, Anne Shine and, and Brian Gans and just partook in many things. And it was it was a great resource. And of course, you know, uh, Don himself was was such a, a resource and he has such a plethora of information in his own mind. So just uh, using him as sort of a, a springboard to, to, to discover new things was was fantastic. So I had a great time. I really appreciated the resource there, and and uh, it helped me even further when I did my doctoral degree. I um, I had a connection from Don, and that helped me uh, further my own my own research into uh, into my doctoral thesis, which we've talked about before as well. So, yeah, really yeah. glad to be talking about rare recordings, which we'll do today, and and um, hearing pianists that probably most listeners don't know, and I only know cursorily. So pretty, pretty interesting. It, it, I'm excited. Ma- Max, a, a, a question for you. Um, or, or I, cause I also understand that IPAM also, I, I don't know if the sponsors or has a, um, um, it has a working relationship with a record label to, to, to help release some of these rare recordings. Am I right about that? Yeah, I, I would say working relationship is a good uh, way to describe it. And maybe Don can talk a little bit more about it. But uh, we do partner with uh, a few labels in particular that are really uh, invested or dedicated to uh, historical recordings. And, and that would be, we mentioned them last time, uh, Marston Records and also APR Records, which is based in uh, the UK. And, and our part generally is supplying uh, the materials from the fairly comprehensive uh, collection we have of 78 RPM recordings. And so it, it's it's sort of like a relay team where we supply the uh, materials in a lot of cases. And uh, they these, these 78s are sent to a transfer engineer who uh, then uh, gets them sounding as good as good as they can sound. And then uh, eventually uh, these, these uh, recordings are released. And there have been many, many of them over the years that uh, Don has, that we've supplied materials, Don has produced and um, written booklet notes for and all sorts of things like that. So it's, it's a, it's a very fruitful partnership and it's something that's definitely ongoing. I would just add that uh, we feel it's important to make 
the um, uh, materials in our collection readily available and accessible. And since we mainly have uh, worked with both Marston for his label and APR uh, over the maybe the last 20 plus years, 2025 years, we've covered quite thoroughly all the major historical pianists from the early 20th century, in fact, from the early 1900s through the mid-century, so that their recordings, which have now become the originals being very rare now, are uh, available to all in CD format. And it's often the complete collections of, mo- of some of the most important pianists, starting with names like Joseph Hoffman, uh, Rachmaninoff, Ignaz Friedman, Joseph Levine, Moritz Rosenthal, and all the names of what we call the golden age of pianists. So over the years, by making the rarities in our collection available in the best possible uh, digitized sound and released to the public, uh, we've covered a lot of ground that was never so easily available before. So we're a little bit proud of contributing through that setup uh, to those people who are interested in the historic uh, sir, in historic surveys of uh, piano playing going back actually into the 19th century. And, and I think that's really important that, that, that um, people support that. Um, I know I've found different recordings of Hoffman, for example, on YouTube, and and uh, it's really difficult to, to, to listen to a lot of times because they are older recordings. So it, it I think to get the best possible recordings available and to have that resource and for people to support the, that kind of work that you guys are doing and that Marston's is doing is, is important. So I'm going to go ahead and put a link at, in the description for people to, to find those, um, find some of those recordings and, and so they can purchase it for their own library. Sounds great. Uh, Maybe just to to segue a little bit into what we were speaking about last time and maybe generally introduce um, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, going back to uh, last time we, we introduced Robert Goldsand. Um, and I just want to say generally that um, in, in addition to, in many cases, these 78 RPMs, which were published or, or sometimes unpublished recordings, um, there are many, uh, probably we couldn't even count, uh, what we have here at IPAM in terms of various, um, live performances in, in various formats. In this case, in Goldsand's case, uh, reel to reel tapes. Hmm. And, and a lot of these things are sitting on the shelves. So, so, uh, this is just, this will be just the smallest, tiniest taste of, um, <clears throat> this, this Goldsand release, which is coming out this year. Uh, hopefully in a couple of months. And uh, just to say that we have much, much more on the shelves that that is yet to be explored. Some of the recordings uh, Max is talking about, besides the all the recordings that have been issued over maybe the last 120 years or so that you at one time could go out and buy if you were interested, are the private recordings in our collection. Mm-hmm. And these can be either, say, recorded off the air from radio broadcasts of concerts and recitals, or since maybe the mid-1960s, these are surreptitious recordings that were made in the audience, or, mm-hmm. if you will, by pirate. These are pirate <laughs> recordings. Mm-hmm. And the people who recorded them have actually preserved these live performances for posterity. And we have uh, thousands of them in the collection. 
uh, covering a lot of the pianistic activity in the recital and concert halls since the mid-1960s when this became fairly common practice. Goldsand fits into this because he was one of those uh, rather unsung pianists who did not have world fame, but he had a following among connoisseurs and, uh, audi- and uh, he built a, a loyal audience, particularly in New York, over many years. And uh, a number of his concerts were recorded surreptitiously. And also he himself contracted to have some of his New York recitals professionally recorded for his own retention. Mm-hmm. So he could listen and listen critically to them uh, after the fact. The uh, history of these, did Max tell you last time how these Maybe came about? Maybe just a very little bit. Uh, it's quite an intriguing story because Goldsand died in 19... What was it? Uh, in the uh, late, sometime in the ni- early 1980s. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact year. And uh, after his death, it was discovered in his studio up in Danbury, Connecticut, that there was a large collection of almost 100 open reel tapes containing his live performances. Hmm. Unfortunately, the studio was in a bad state of repair. Part of it had collapsed, and the tapes at least many of them had suffered mold and mildew damage. Mm. And these were the only documentation in most cases of Goldsand's performances uh, in his prime when he was at the peak of his powers, playing regularly in New York each year and in some other venues as well. But the tapes were discovered by a neighbor of the (laughs) Goldsands, uh, Goldsand and his wife in Danbury. And by sheer luck, this neighbor knew about IPAM, and the collections we had here at Maryland. And she called me one day offering, are you interested in these tapes of Robert Goldsand that were found in his studio, even though their condition isn't very good? And I said, absolutely, we will take them. And we discovered this covered a a large quantity of his uh, performances over the years. And because of the condition of the tapes, we had to outsource them to one of the uh, first-class audio restoration engineers in New York named Seth Winner. Hmm. And he had to deal with the tapes through various means he had at his disposal. And after restoring them physically, he had to make digital transfers of them. And finally, to make a long story short, we auditioned the musical content of these tapes and found a, a large number of really outstanding performances that represented gold sand at his best and selected about nearly four hours worth of performances uh, from these recitals that Marston, Ward Marston, will be issuing on his label in just a few months. And it'll be the first representation of Gold Sand on compact discs. He had been overlooked up to this point because he made very few official recordings and most of those way back in the early LP era of the early 50s. Wow. Well, that that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And Ward Marston, I know um, you're being a little bit too modest too in, in all of your uh, help and dealings and, and part that you play in, in this. So, um, yeah, that's that's going to be wonderful. All right. Yeah. So, can we hear the first example? Um, yeah, it's let's a very hear. short example. It's just to give you a taste. And, and again, the this uh, it'll be a three CD set that will come out. Um, we're hoping in, a, in the next couple of months. And uh, generally, I think with Gold Sand, I think one of the things that's very 
remarkable about him, particularly when he got in front of an audience, is he he seems to bring together uh, uh, aspects that we would associate with the former or historic or um, romantic pianist, where he does take certain mm-hmm. liberties. There's a certain freedom in his playing. Uh, but there's also, um, I don't know how you would call it, but I, I think he, he sort of bridges uh, a romantic and modern in a, in a yeah. very satisfying way, I would say. That's, that's a good description of him because uh, his pedigree, if you will, as far as his own training and experience goes back to Vienna in the early uh, 1920s when he worked with the Liszt pupil Moritz Rosenthal as his main mm-hmm. teacher. And uh, some of the Rosenthal influence can be felt in uh, Goldsand's playing. Um, he was more strict when he was playing the classical repertoire, uh, such as Mozart and Beethoven and Schubert. When he came to the Romantic era, Chopin, Liszt, and beyond, he played uh, with full awareness of the traditions that had been built up going back into the 19th century, which involved uh, freedom of interpretation uh, that uh, enabled him to present his own ideas about the music, but still within the bounds of good style. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm excited Great. to hear this. All right, well, this will be, this is Robert Goldsand. Uh, this is the Chopin Etude in F minor, opus 25, number two. Pretty cool. Okay, let's all jump in. (laughs) (laughs) I know we all have stuff to say. Well, what's your what's your reaction, Elias? Yeah, so this is the first time I'm I'm hearing it, uh, which is very cool. Uh, So I disclaimer too. I've performed this a lot. I've performed the Opus Twenty Five set a few times in concert. I'm sure Don, you you and Max have both played this, and and Mike, I know you know these and probably played this one. one thing that I, I noticed is just the clarity of the right hand. It feels like he's not using a lot of pedal, but at the same time, it's very connected. You know, the left hand is very connected. Some things that I notice it actually I do a little bit of, but uh, probably got it from, from somewhere else, or 
I don't know where, but some of the uh, timing uh, with with the intro and also with the end, um, and also bringing out the left hand. There's a thumb that yes. kind of comes out. There's an mm-hmm. inner voice, and he brings that out the second time a little bit more, which uh, which I I kind of like at the end. I think there's one note that I do slightly differently with the thumb. So there's a da 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 something like that. But uh, he he did a beautiful job with that, and the last return the dun, da, 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 a little bit of portato yeah. staccato ish on that and and i i've heard a couple pianists do that maybe not as as sort of stretched but i felt that it was still stylistic and and still um uh beautifully done and and you know not over the top but in general just very uh very interesting it really kept my interest and i i really liked uh liked the, his his performance yeah, certainly not just a, a, a routine run through of that piece. And, and mm-hmm. this is this is just sort of a small small scale example. I, I think mm-hmm. uh, there there maybe are slightly more overt mm-hmm. uh, liberties he takes in, in certain other things, but it just it does give you a taste. I would say this comes from mm-hmm. a recital where Goldsand uh, played uh, a full dozen Chopin etudes of his own selection. Now oh. Elias is very brave playing publicly the entire Opus 25 etude, which etudes, mm-hmm. all 12 of them, if I heard correctly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldsand uh, would li- made a personal selection from all of the Chopin etudes, Opus mm-hmm. 10, 25, and the three additional ones, uh-huh. uh, arranging them for contrast and sure. assembling his own sequence. And this came from a, such a, a series of 12 the entire group of which will be on the Marston release. This was just an excerpt. Okay. And uh, so he w- he did this frequently in his recitals. He he had his own grouping of a dozen etudes, sometimes throwing in a couple more as encores after the fact. Did, did he mix those up? I, I assume he played all 27 then. He did he yeah, choose? He, re- okay. he recorded all of them in the early 50s for uh, an LP label called Concert Hall Society and uh, kind of a mainstay of his recitals when he devoted mm-hmm. himself to Chopin, was his own uh, dozen uh, okay. etudes selected from the entire collection. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a cool way to do it. Uh, I did that more it, of necessity before I had learned all the 25 because I would play <laughs> a few, you know, in a concert and then add to it the next year and such. Mm-hmm. But wow, very interesting playing. Yeah, uh, Goldsand was a pianist who had the entire works of Chopin in his repertoire. And in fact, for the Chopin centenary, uh, of his death in 1949, he played six recitals in New York, encompassing more or less the complete Chopin. And uh, we have to also mention his repertoire was vast. There was really no segment of the piano literature that didn't interest him going back to the uh, Baroque period uh, up through uh, contemporary composers who even, in many cases, wrote pieces for him that he premiered. Oh, who are, who are some of those composers? Uh, I didn't realize that. There were a couple of Americans. Uh, one was called Earl George, whose uh, set of marches for piano uh, he often included in his recitals. And a Latin American composer, Arge, um, was he Brazilian? Uh, Guarnieri. Uh, oh, I don't know either of those. Margot Guarnieri uh, wrote a sonatina uh, for Goldsand that he often played and will, in fact, be included uh, in the CD set. And uh, a lot of Americans, he even played the well-known contemporaries like Hindemith, Schoenberg, mm-hmm. Bartok, mm-hmm. Uh, and so forth. So he covered the gamut of, of piano literature uh, and uh, very appropriately, too. There was 
uh, he had this insatiable curiosity uh, to play everything and, and showed a great affinity for whatever the style might have been. It's interesting to think of those um, musical giants as contemporaries, you know. Right. <laughs> now I might think, oh, Schoenberg, like, it's still very new sounding in some ways, but it's, it's 100 years old. And yet uh, uh, Goldstein would have known these people, perhaps met them, I'm, I'm guessing. or um, In some cases, I think so. Okay. Uh, he, he worked with composers personally uh, in, in many instances. And if you look over the programs he played, uh, the wide variety Mm-hmm. that he uh, he presented to the public, not just all Chopin or all Schumann, uh, all Rachmaninoff recitals to, on occasion, but also extremely varied programs that covered the whole field. Do you know about, I know I'm, I keep asking questions about him because I think it's a fascinating life. Do you know about how many recitals he might have played in his life? Or? We don't know the grand total. Uh, he uh, played in New York almost every year, at least once, if not more often had engagements in Europe uh, periodically, but uh, his other, uh, the rest of his musical pursuits were uh, devoted to his students mm-hmm. at the Manhattan School of Music in New York oh, over many tough. years, starting in the early 50s. Okay. okay. So he was a sought-after teacher there, and uh, in the booklet notes that I prepared for the Marston release, I have some uh, comments from a couple of students who worked with him describing some okay. aspects of his teaching as well. So, and I think, I think you mentioned it earlier, but, but can you emphasize again, what, what maybe is the reason why he is a little bit more obscure and and why we don't know more about him? Well, he kept a low profile. I think he never, uh, a comment I made in the, in the booklet notes, uh, I'll quote myself here. He never indulged in any extra musical dalliances, meaning (laughs) of any kind, like some pianists we could name who uh, had had other pursuits that interested them, and he had no particular craving for the spotlight. So he was perfectly satisfied uh, to play regularly in New York and elsewhere in the country uh, and to pursue his teaching at the Manhattan School, and he had a devoted following which was, for his purposes, uh, sufficient and satisfying. And he never uh, needed to, uh, in his his own outlook, to go be much beyond that. So therefore, he didn't have world fame or international renown or mystique uh, in the manner of, say, Horowitz or some of the other virtuosos who uh, made the headlines back in that period. So, so he really was about the piano. Like, that was his, his love and his passion was... was, yeah. was he and his playing. wife had two German shepherd dogs in their home in uh, Danbury, <laughs> Connecticut. Uh, but uh, he, he was devoted to the piano above all else, certainly. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, that's awesome. I, maybe we can uh, go to another and, and start listening to some more. I, I love that. Unless we, if you want to talk a little bit about this recording or his playing, I'm fine no, with that. No, no, I, I think it's fine to go on. And, and I think um, when we were talking about... Um, having a part two of our, our discussion with you guys, mm-hmm. um, we, we were at first thinking about just revisiting Gold Sand and just doing that, but then we decided to uh, add another aspect mm-hmm. to um, the presentation, which kind of falls under the same umbrella, and it, it, it would be um, recordings that, that are either out or about to be issued that um, really have their origin in the IPAM collection. So in this case, mm-hmm. we're going to be focusing on a composer 
mm-hmm. um, a composer, pianist, and many other things, whose collection is here at IPAM, and that would be uh, Abram Chasens, who who might be familiar to some people, but not a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so um, we we have selected a handful of uh, a few short recordings from a new CD release uh, that is the complete piano works of Abram Chasens. Mm. Wonderful. Um, yeah. What, what, what would you, what do you think should be our first uh, move into, into this? Well, just to give the basic background about Chasen's uh, he was born in New York in 1903 and he uh, had very solid early musical training there. Uh, and in the 1920s came under the wing of Joseph Hoffman, just mm. as Hoffman uh, was helping to establish the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia as a new uh, musical training center. And uh, Chasen's was the assistant to Hoffman there, studied with Hoffman at the same time he was establishing his own career as both a pianist and a composer. And one of the pieces he wrote then when he, Chasen's was in his early 20s, was a short piece called Rush Hour in Hong Kong. (laughs) And it's a a brief show piece that uh, was taken up by a number of pianists. It was an instant hit uh, and in great demand by people who had enough uh, facility to handle it, presto and prestissimo uh, designations in the score. And he quickly added two additional Chinese pieces called a Shanghai Tragedy and uh, Flirtation in a Chinese Garden. And those two, plus the Rush Hour, were published together as three Chinese pieces. And this established... Chasen's fame. And uh, he then uh, was able to publish additional pieces, including a set of 24 preludes and some other pieces that appeared in the 1920s and 30s, all the while he was pursuing his career uh, as a pianist and uh, earning accolades for his uh, recitals that were devoted to uh, standard piano works, as well as occasionally some of his own pieces. Then he entered into the field of radio broadcasting in the 30s, uh, presenting a weekly program nationally on uh, this new CBS network called Piano Pointers. And he Mm. would play and discuss uh, piano works that were likely to be uh, studied by aspiring pianists, young and old, at the time. And this garnered quite a following nationally, simply Mm -hmm. as... uh, from listeners who tuned in to his broadcasts. And he continued in that vein uh, into the 1940s and 50s at WQXR in New York, Mm. the uh, classical music station of the New York Times. But his activities as a pianist and as a composer tapered off so he could mainly pursue his broadcasting interests and then became the author of a book, the first of several books, starting in the 50s, a classic book called Speaking of Pianists. Hmm. And this drew upon his personal experience, not just as a student of Hoffman, but he, uh, he was active socially with many of the famous pianists of the day, including Rachmaninoff and Arthur Schnabel and Leopold Godofsky and George Gershwin, all of whom were either friends of his or mentors. And he gave... Hmm in the book, Personal Portraits of All These People. And once you read the book, you know that he knew everyone 
and had firsthand, uh, could give firsthand accounts of their personalities, both musical and otherwise. So Jason's was a major musical figure uh, from many, in many facets, but nowadays he, let's see, he died in 1987. Hmm. Uh, there, his books are still uh, rather easily available. Speaking of pianists, is especially noteworthy. And as a composer, uh, we now have a chance to uh, hear his output, a uh, rather small output, but a very interesting output as a composer for the piano. And Max can probably tell you a little more how we got going on this particular project. Well, uh, yes, I, uh, I did want to just say one small thing, and that was that this book, Speaking of Pianists, I think uh, in the mm-hmm. part one of our discussion last time, I was um, talking about Harold Schoenberg's The Great Pianist, but Speaking of Pianists is another one of those classic books that I think any interested, uh, serious piano student should read uh, that's a, a very, very good um, introduction to the great historic pianist. Um, now, this project, um, and Elias, you'll, you'll recognize the connection here. Uh, our, our friend Margarita Glaboff is the mm-hmm. pianist here. And oh, Margarita, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Margarita uh, did her, Margarita Glaboff did her uh, doctorate here at the University of Maryland and at various times uh, has worked, done some work for IPAM, uh, doing some Russian translation. And uh, she's just a fantastic uh, top level pianist. And she, she before this CD, uh, she um, <clears throat> did, what is it, three other CDs, uh, which all of which featured several world premieres. So, so mm-hmm. she's, she's sort of uh, found a niche for, for, um, for bringing out this uh, repertoire that is not known or that has not been recorded. And of course, she plays everything at, at the highest, highest possible level. So actually, she was, I, I remember a discussion I had with her going back a few years ago, and she was thinking about doing something with Zelati and his many transcriptions. Alexander Zelati, who was Rachmaninoff's cousin and a Liszt pupil. And I she didn't sound particularly enthusiastic about it, but she was going to do it. And I remember I spoke with her on the phone one time. I said, well, what about Abram Chasen's? I said, nobody's done uh, Chasen's. And she said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll look at it. And she she started looking through some of the music and she decided to do it. Hmm. And um, a, a handful of the preludes and some of the other pieces, of course, the three Chinese pieces and a few other things had been recorded, but a, a good deal Oh, what would you say? Maybe half of the, the more material? more than half had not been recorded by anyone. Yeah, and certainly mm. no one had done the complete set of uh, twenty four preludes. Wow. I, I would say you'll hear. Um, I, I think the music will speak for itself. But I, I would say, uh, as somebody as a composer writing in the first half of the twentieth century, he was he was sort of writing in. I would say a uh, more of a conservative. Mm romantic vein that's that's sort of hearkening back to a previous generation of great romantic piano writing so so you you might hear some influences of, of Rachmaninoff and and Scriabin and things like that in his music a, along with uh, some of the people who were contemporary of his, in his time like like George Gershwin which we'll definitely hear in one of the examples that we're we'll hear today and um, maybe a little bit of Prokofiev, the smattering of, of, of various influences you'll hear in his music. 
but it's it's very effective. It's very well written for the piano. So mm-hmm. maybe we can just jump into the first uh, example, which would be the first of the 24 preludes, which is in C major. Mm-hmm. All right, here is prelude number one. charming piece um, but also a lot of uh, turmoil in there but uh, beautiful and of course wonderfully played I, I like the pacing the the timing and uh, yeah voicing everything's just very f- polished and yeah Did it reminds, you, I, I know Margaret is playing very well and that's f- fantastic so do you is are, are there any composers uh, if you were to name an influence or or Relate it to any other composer, Elias. Is, does anyone come to mind? Just with, I know it's just one piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm always going to think of okay, what Chopin first prelude? You know, is that going to be in? There's some of that in there. Um, when, when, when they, when uh, you know, the piece goes up, let's see, major, and it seems like there's some augmented chord coming down. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, I don't know if there's. Mm, Rachmaninoff in there. I I really don't. I mean, I definitely feel some Rachmaninoff in, mm-hmm. in there, especially those, those pedal tones at the end that are that are going on. I'm thinking like, okay, is it quite there? And is Scriabin in there? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who you're looking for per se. But, no, no. I was just I was just curious. Yeah. Uh, your your impression just just yeah. hearing this, I guess, for the first time. It's almost a little schmaltzy, but yeah. not too much. Uh, I I think he. You know, he skirts the line between, or he holds that balance between refinement and and kind of over the top, you know, wearing your your heart on your sleeve. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, what, I, I like it. It's a good. Piece. One of the uh, favorite indoor sports of of piano fanatics <laughs> is to listen to uh, a work, obscure piano work, uh, and then play a game of spot the influences. Uh-huh. 
And if you listen to all 24 of the Chasen's Prelude straight through, it takes just barely over half an hour. Most of them are very brief, two to three minutes maximum, uh-huh. some even shorter. Uh, he says what needs to be said and then knows when to stop. So uh-huh. none of these are long-winded, but there's a, a, a wide variety of moods, of piano textures, and everything. Uh, no two of the preludes are really alike. Huh. And if you listen through the entire cycle, uh, you can spot quite a number of influences. But then at the same time, uh, he is not really copying anyone quite literally either. Uh-huh. He, he manages to create a, a, a kind of uh, individual personality uh, of his own, uh, nonetheless, without ever really copying uh, straightforwardly any any of the composers that he particularly revered. Mm-hmm. Are all are the preludes like Chopin or Bach in, in the 24 keys? They run through all 24 keys, but okay. he concocted a different sequence of his own okay. uh, for these, which is a little more complicated, but uh, they makes, it makes sense. Uh-huh. But it's not the same as uh, the other familiar sets that mm-hmm. either move through uh, uh, major, relative, minor, and so on. But yeah. it's a very effective cycle, the way he put the entire set of 24 together for maximum contrast. And number 24, which we will not hear, but uh, it, it brings together everything. It's a summation of those that come before and has a triumphant ending. Mm-hmm. Unlike, for instance, Chopin's last D minor prelude, which yeah. sends you oh. descending into the depths of hell. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. It's a big ending, but it's uh, (laughs) wow! Not exactly triumphant, right? Not not really. (laughs) Maybe for some. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this uh, this, this other prelude we're going to hear. um, If uh, maybe Don can correct me, but it it was used. Was it the introductory music for his radio program? It was a theme music. Uh, Each Mm -hmm. uh, the program began with uh, the beginning of this prelude when he was doing his piano pointers broadcasts Mm -hmm. in the mid-30s, in 1930s, for CBS. And uh, it became quite popular. Uh, It was one of Chasen's better-known pieces, and a a number of pianists uh, took it up. Mm -hmm. All right, well, this is his uh, prelude number 14.
Well, I love well, there that. it is. Sort of a I like uh, that a nostalgic uh, type of piece, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that last cadence is wow. That's beautiful. You've got like the the nanku that's second in there or something. Oh boy, that's beautiful. I uh, I just have to say, you know, I'm I'm kind of holding back a bit. I, <clears throat> you know, Margarita and I studied with the same teacher uh, at the same time, and there was a group of us that used to um, kind of play for each other. And they go into IPAM. I'm sure you remember the group of us that came in different times, uh, Elliot and Nico and all of us. But uh, yeah, boy, she, I think she's at another level now. I haven't heard her playing in many years. And it's she was very good back then. Yes. And now it's just, you know, like phenomenal playing. Um, and just the right amount of sort of turning of that phrase. I love that melody that goes, da, 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 you know. Um, it almost Scriabin-esque in the harmonies and these these clashes that are still really beautiful and poignant. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the voicing is so good that it just it just comes out and a really nice vignette there. I really liked it. So this this would be the the nineteen thirties, I guess, right? Uh, this particular yes, yeah, nineteen twenty eight. Twenty eight. He completed the the set and published wow. them. Just you, you, yeah, you get the feeling though. Ago. He wishes he lived maybe about. 50 or so years earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the spirit of it, I would well, say. Well, like, like Rachmaninoff, he came under criticism for not mm. being up to date in his musical <laughs> idiom. Mm. He was too old-fashioned. Yeah. He wasn't uh, atonal enough to compete with some of <laughs> yeah. the, the big Pastiche boys. more. Than, yeah. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, he went his own way. Uh, and uh, now I think this uh, CD, which was just released last month, Toccata Classics, is the label of, of the complete Chasen's work. It takes a little over one CD, so there are two CDs for the price of one. Most of the pieces are short. There's one major piece called Narrative that Chasen's later wrote in the 1930s that is uh, about eight minutes long in the form of a kind of a dramatic ballad. But uh, most of them are, are relatively short, and I think uh, with the release of Margarita's CD of, of these Chasen's pieces, he will attract some uh, uh, kind of a resurgence of interest in him as a composer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Elise's cats appreciates the, the piece too. Oh, did you hear them? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear uh, them. That's um, cute. So, uh, um, wow. th- now this next piece is, it's, it's an interesting title. And I think this is the, this is the one that you're referring to as, as far as having some, um, Yes, Gershwin, and Gershwin maybe a very, yeah. very watered down Gershwin influence. And, okay. and this is from uh, a set called uh, Piano Playtime, which uh, Chasen's obviously wrote uh, for for more pedagogical uh, reasons for, for students, effective pieces for students. Is it, is it six pieces? In seven. This? Seven, seven pieces. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're very, you know, usually... Um, they're very charming, very witty sort of pieces. And I, I'll tell you, uh, uh, I actually gave a couple of these pieces uh, to one of my students this year. They're they're really excellent pieces for sort of an intermediate level piano student. They have a lot of melodic and character interest in them. And actually, uh, William Capel, for, for, for some reason, uh, did record a few of them. Uh, in the early 1950s, I'm not sure what the connection was there, but he he found them attractive enough that he did uh, play some of them. Uh, so this one is called Tricky Trumpet, 
And um, and as I said, the, the main character is sort of a, a watered-down Gershwin, uh, but then there's a middle section that uh, uh, I think you'll well, I'll, I'll quiz Elias. Oh, oh. <laughs> if, if you can catch the theme that he's he's um, quoting in the okay. All right, here we go. This is the tricky trumpet. cute too oh, wow <laughs> they're drawing jazz trumpet into a march yeah <laughs> that's I, fun i usually don't necessarily like to uh, think of visuals with music per se but this would be a great you know like a singing in the rain just lollygagging on the sidewalk in the 1930s in new york yeah. and yeah. you know in the in the pinstripe suit and <laughs> with the guy it's great yeah and then the pop, what was it? pop goes the weasel or something <laughs> I, I thought it was that Marseillaise. Oh, it could be that. Okay. French national anthem. But it starts off. Yeah, you're right. With the other. Well, Chasen's was rather clever at times. And there's another piece in the piano playtime called, which is the one by the brook, by the brook quotes directly from one of the Brahms variations on a theme of Paganini. Oh, uh, it's unmistakable, uh-huh. and but Chasen's does acknowledge it in a footnote, just so he won't be accused of plagiarism. <laughs> yeah, well, these but are different times too. But he, he inserts it uh, in the score, and it, somehow it fits. But uh, mm-hmm. the pianists will uh, will smile a little bit when they run it, when they see that little spot in the, yeah. in the other piece. Yeah, oh, very charming, cute piece. Yeah, is is that piece you said William Capel played it? Is that on that uh, ten CD set? Yes. Okay. Strangely enough, Capel uh, did record four of the seven piano playtime pieces. They were not released while he was alive. They were found uh, as unreleased items uh, in the uh, RCA Victor uh, archives. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chasen's and Capel were were well acquainted. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, Chasen's regarded Capel as the young American pianists who stood above all the rest. Mm -hmm. And uh, like the rest of us was genuinely genuinely, uh, 
saddened with his death in uh, the plane crash in 53. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, uh, I, I hate to interject here, or maybe I don't hate to, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering, uh, just as we close up and speak about Chasen's, if if he's willing to tell. I think Don has m- did meet Abram Chasen's mm-hmm. uh, going back to his youth, so I'm wondering if he could uh, talk about that. Not very much. I it, it, it's a long and complicated story, but uh, there was an occasion. Uh, when I was able to play for Chasen's mm. uh, when I was in high school, mm. uh, not in the sense that uh, it was a lesson or even a master class or anything like that, mm. but it was uh, a private occasion with several people where he was visiting and I happened to be there. And uh, I got to meet him at the time, ask him a few questions about some things he wrote in his book, Speaking of Pianists, which mm-hmm. he very kindly autographed for me. Oh, nice. and, uh, but I know uh, Chasen's is a major influence on me in my development in uh, appreciating the whole field of, of piano playing. I think I bought uh, Speaking of Pianists shortly after it was published, and I was, I think, in junior high school at the time. So mm. that, that oh. tells you a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's Donald awesome. Man- uh, Manildi Maxwell Brown, thank you for so so much. For, and we can we do this? I mean, if you're willing, I would love to do this again. I really, again, feel like we're just scratching the surface on surface. Yes, on it, it seems a bit rushed, but it's it's a it's a lot of fun, and I'm I'm glad uh, just for what whatever it is that we can introduce to your audience, and uh, it's been really great to talk with you guys. Let me ask you this uh, for both of you: what what's the best way for people who want to support uh, IPAM? What's the best way for them to do that to get to know the library? How how can they do that? Access the website would probably be the most direct method, uh, which gives uh, full information about the content of our collections and uh, all the aspects of what we do here. Um, what is the web address? <laughs> well, I was mentioning to them last time. This yeah, it's is, changed a bit. Yeah, yeah. We had the, the migration, and uh, it is uh, under the live. We, I, I guess, Mike, you can supply a link. Uh, I the will. Best, yes. The best would be, uh, or a simple Google search that says yes. International Piano Archives at Maryland will take you directly to yeah, it. Yeah, the, 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 the web address thing. used to be a lot more simple, but it's a bit more complicated now, but, but it's pretty easy to access. Very good. Well, thank you both for, for sharing your knowledge with us. I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm pumped up. I, I, I have a lot more listening to do now. Thank you. <laughs> this yeah, is exciting. Great, great music. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Elias, another, another one that just knocked it out of the park. I, yeah. I appreciate your, your help in, in putting this together. Oh, it's great pleasure. And I, I just love doing this. So I hope the listeners will enjoy it as much as we did. Are listening to End of Love Remain. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. We're trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization down.